Last time, I spoke about Bergson's radical distinction between space and time, quality and quantity, duration and extension, in his first most significant work, Time and Free Will. In another of Bergson's major works, Matter and Memory, Bergson builds on the insights of his earlier work, this time in the context of memory. Now, when we think of memory, we usually consider it to be a psychological concept, to do with the self. It is a type of thinking located in the mind pertaining in some way to a retrieval of the past. Bergson thinks this is true, but only tells a small part of the story. In fact, Bergson actually thinks that memory and the way it works is indicative of something much deeper, broader and metaphysically more interesting. So, modern memory offers us an exploration of how the relationship between time matter and memory unfolds. More specifically, matter and memory offers fresh and detailed descriptions of different types of memory. For example, Bergson talks about the function of body memory or habitual and muscle memory, as well he talks of things like episodic memory, processual and in-memory image. In this lecture, I aim to explain the ways Bergson's account of memory maps onto a theory of duration. Doing so, will allow me to explain how he conceives of the operation of memory itself, how Bergson thinks the mind relates to the body, and how conscious memory relates to unconscious bodily memory in the form of habit, but also how the mind is always more than just mind. Part 1. Memory and Duration What would an empiricist think about memory? If we think about David Hume's theory of memory, we get a sense of what Bergson is trying to overcome. Hume as an empiricist, thought that all knowledge, as well as our cognitive faculties, are derived from sense experience. And implicit to this idea is a theory of memory. When we experience an impression immediately, it is forceful, making a direct impression upon us. Our cognitive experience, then, is a fainter and weaker memory copy of this external impression. Here we can see, here we can see that the idea is that a memory is in some way secondary since it is less vivid, vigorous, compelling when compared to an impression. Epistemologically, memories are less valuable for deriving knowledge from the world. This is borne out in common sense notions that we all in some way know that our memories are fallible and unreliable. Also, the empirical idea is that memory is representational, where through sensations the mind represents copies of or more feigned versions of how things are in the external world. Bergson wants to subvert that idea. Empirical and psychological theories of memory are, well, too passive for Bergson, since the mind is a passive recipient of what is experienced of the external world. Bergson thinks the opposite is the case, that our consciousness is much more involved, engaged, active even, in engaging with the external world. Not only this, but he also thinks that memory is not at all secondary. In fact, memory is central to understanding how we are and how we transcend our animal consciousness. In addition, Bergson thinks memory is not reducible to our immediate experience as it unfolds. We think of memory as a past brought into the present and is thus a byproduct of a discrete moment. The conventional way of thinking about memory in this way is that it is a representation, a retention, a repetition, or a reproduction of what has gone before. In short, the past is repeated. In contrast, Bergson thinks memory is vital, alive, and 
continually inventing the present. As such, memory is creative. And this runs against the grain of our common sense understanding of memory, since for Bergson, memory as an inventive is not just concerned with the past, but also geared towards the future. Memory is thus linked to duration. Here we can see Bergson's vitalist credentials become explicit. Memory relates to a duration that is not material. Now, what does that mean? If you think about it, the idea is simple at the core. Matter has no memory itself. To say a material object, like a stone, has a memory of the past seems absurd. But equally, the human being has animal instincts and habits and is, to some degree, materially constituted. So how does the material being that we are come to be able to remember at all? The answer, Bergson thinks, lies in the question of duration and novelty. Since matter has no past, it is only the repetition of a present, then beings that are different in degree from matter behave differently. An organic being is alive and therefore creates itself or recreates its matter in the very act of self-maintaining itself, keeping itself alive in other words. The very act of being alive means what is alive is creating and transforming into something new at each moment or each present. But of course that begs the question, what is the present? The present is indexed, at least when it comes to perception, to sensation for Bergson, or our unquestioned and immediate moments of sense perception. Our trouble is that we think of perceptions in a quantitative or mathematical way. Like we saw in Time and Free Will, we tend to think of the present as a mathematical point. Similarly, we think of a perception as an immediate and singular sensation. But this really is an impossibility. We can't think of a sensation without some minimal form of memory. So, while time and free will does not engage in detail with the question of memory, in matter and memory, Bergson makes memory central. But the central idea of time and free will does remain. And in time and free will, of course, Bergson talks about how consciousness is not a quantitative succession of external points, bits, or monads. Rather, consciousness is a qualitative continuity, an indivisible flow, without disjunction or the interruption. The key point being, then, that our consciousness is only thinkable because of memory. Memory is possible due to duration. And now here we can see the ontological implications of Bergson's thought emerge. Memory is not of the now, but rather of the totality of the past. This is not to say that mind is the past, but rather is of the past. Memory's duration means there is no difference in kind between then and now. Every so-called moment occurs as a past unfolding onto a future. Sensations and instincts are part of that too. While we tend to think of them as isolated and discrete, they are actually, according to Bergson, purely relational notions. The consequence of this view is memory is in some way active or surplus over our material constitution. Our memory is not reducible to a simple sensation or instinct. And furthermore, memory and consciousness are not kept or stored in a brain, or any other organ for that matter. The latter point is interesting, because Bergson is saying that the mind is not kept in the brain. Furthermore, memory is not an epiphenomenon of the brain, that is a secondary effect or a byproduct of the brain. The brain is certainly involved, 
it acts more like a filter or a gatekeeper of deeper and longer processes. It would, I think, be a bit silly to say that our memories are our brain. But insofar as they relate to perception and memory, he thinks the mind is constituted actively in relation to its environment and the surge of the past informing the present. Bergson, thus, I think, wants to concentrate on matter and memory on ensuring memory is independent of matter. He wants to determine that mind and matter are two different substances. He still remains a type of a dualist in that regard. There is a metaphysical difference in kind between memory and matter. So, while our perceptions, feelings and sensations have their origin in matter and are different in degree, the difference between matter and memory is stark. It is radically different. This would be the case for any type of idea. The minute we say our ideas are this memory, this image, or this sound thought, whatever, then we are actually removing ourselves from the activity of our lived experience. And Bergson thinks that this lived experience supersedes any abstract pictures we construct of the mind as some kind of neutral arbiter, representer, judge, or active machine, even doing the work of representing. This is, in fact, a very, or that would be a very simplistic view of consciousness, according to Bergson. If we think of ideas as isolated, rather than implicated in webs of mutual influence, then we're not really getting anywhere. So, in Bergson, in a strange way, there is no mind, or there is no consciousness adjudicating or bringing all memories together with a will. There is awareness, metacognition, for sure, but this is activity not an abstract idea of the mind, standing outside of the mind. As Bergson himself says, and I quote, to deduce consciousness would be, indeed, a bold undertaking. But it's not really necessary here, because by positing the material world, we assume an aggregate of images. Moreover, because it is impossible to assume anything else, no theory of matter escapes this necessity. The metaphysical consequences, then, of that are quite fascinating, when we attend properly to perception, we are not actually inside ourselves, passively receiving sins data from the external world. We are actively outside ourselves, touching, and I quote Bergson again here, the reality of the object in an immediate intuition, rather than, say then, with secondary abstractions. Part 2. Image memory and pure memory. If memory is wholly different to discrete perceptions, then how can we explain the overlapping of past and present, their separateness and the indivisible surging continuity of durational time? In chapter 2 of Matter and Memory, Bergson gives us his famous distinction between two types of memory, or between image memory and pure memory. Pure memory is spontaneous, active, immediate. Image memory, on the other hand, is discrete, tied to an image, Abstract derivative. Images themselves, Bergson thinks, are of the present moment. This is easy enough to grasp, I think. If you try to think of any memory of a past event, say something recent, from last weekend, say, the image you bring to mind offers a dim version of a past event in the present. This type of perceptual memory is a type of reproduction or a copy of the past in the now. Now, terribly useful in figuring out what we were up to last weekend. But this is not real memory for Bergson, or what he calls virtual memory sometimes. Real memory is the past itself as it acts on the present. While image memory makes us think we are reproducing the past in the present, 
and thereby reducing memory to a repetition. In contrast, with real memory, the present is radically different to the past and thus wholly new. What we call the present is rather the influencing of immediate and a determination of an imminent future. What is present perception is tied up with the whole of the past as well as determining what is to come. Thus the long past and the immediate past are more or less the same phenomenon. How we discriminate what happens in the past from the present is a question of intensity. Real memory is a past itself, connected, affecting, moving along all of its developmental states. Real memory has its own individuality and intensity. Now, I appreciate this is complicated as I have posed it, but thankfully Bergson, and he's great for this, gives us an example. He talks about how we commit a text to memory or, or learn something by heart, say like learning a poem or something like that. Each time I repeat the text by writing it down or memorising it through orally spe- speaking it or whatever form of mnemonic suits me, what, what I'm doing is not copying the past, rather I am introducing a change. Bergson says, and I quote, each successive reading then recurs to me with its own individuality. The introduction of a change, as opposed to the representation of my past memory of the text, means my thinking of the text is no longer a representation. Rather, it is an action. And what is more, it is an action that is thinkable as a habit. A habit is a change that attempts to prolong itself. A habit is also a type of memory. It's a different type of memory to image memory, I guess. But if they are so radically different, how do we move from the first to the second, which is the question, how from image memory to pure memory? And the answer is true habit memory, which I'll try to explain now. Of, of, of the images which we have, one is more totally and that is our body image or a kind of sensimotor holism. Our habits are not separate from our perceptions or our instincts. In fact, our habit memories emerge out of these. But as our habit is strictly unconscious, it is a type of second nature. And if you think about it, habits are, after all, things we do without thinking of them. Additionally, habits are therefore not static, they are active, providing us with a sense of environmental navigation, for better or worse, you know, good habits and bad habits. Our habit memories have their origin, if not their end, in our material perception. But because they actively operate prior to ego awareness, these dispositions are also virtual or nascent tendencies which make the mechanism that we are responsive to the environment we are in. The crucial point here is that Bergson is making perception and sensation a function of movement and duration. Habit memories then are important mediators between perceptual memory and real memory or pure memory and uh, image memory. If we take Specific habit memories, say a muscle memory, the temptation is to think of our body as a repository or a storehouse. We think of our habits as collected and put in storage in our bodies, ready to be activated when needed. This is a rather mechanistic, even computerized view of human bodies as stores of memory which can be retrieved and acted upon by minds when required. We can certainly say habit memories are retained or stored in some way. But Bergson's deeper point is that these habit memories are actively responsive to whatever ends we require in a particular environment, which of course tells us that our habit memories are in fact active rather than passive. The reason our bodies retain past habit memories 
is because the body actively prolongs past experiences to respond to present needs. Habit memories are crucial because they equip us with dispositions, I suppose, to ensure our past dispositions are useful for practical activities. In a way, habit memories allow us to sift through past experiences to respond to relevant experiences and needs as they come up. If habits were not of the past, then our immediate experience would be quite a jumble. There would be no difference between past and present senses. Memories of the long past and short past are images of what is occurring now, something that happened years ago. And this is what life is according to Bergson. Our unique form of life demands a novel adaptation to our environment. As Bergson says, and I quote, thus is ensured the appropriate reaction, the correspondence to environment. Adaptation in a word, which is the general aim of life. And a living being which did nothing but live would need no more than this. But simultaneously, with this process of perception and adaptation, which ends in the record of the past in the form of motor habits, consciousness, as we've seen, retains the image of the situations through which it has successively travelled and lays them side by side in the order in which they took place. Those themes of habit memory brings us to another distinction in matter memory, and that is between recognition and attention. Habit memories are bodily recognitions, if you like. The idea is our material body develops habits which recognize circumstances and situations which they can adapt to. Not quite the way we use the term recognition in an everyday life sense, where we recognize something cognitively then. Quite the opposite, it's sort of an unconscious recognition. On the other hand, attention is the homing in or focusing of our conscious awareness on particular and specific circumstances. Here, attention recollects and abstracts things, memories, patterns from the past to consciously apply them to the present. Attentive memory emerges from the subject, habitual memory emerges from the body, and is, I suppose, strictly unconscious. Basically, our attentive memory operates in a quantitative, imagistic way. These images are datable, countable, and no different to each other. As Bergson notes, and I quote, It is like an event in my life. Its essence is to bear a date, and consequently, to be unable to occur again. In contrast, habit memories are formed by the introduction of changes in the present. A habit is formed of repeated actions which build up sediment, and I quote again, within the body as a series of mechanisms wound up and ready with reactions to external stimuli even more numerous and more varied and answers ready prepared to an ever-growing number of possible solicitations. Our habits then show that memory is of the whole body. It is sensorimotor. What we call the present is not a repetition but a wholly novelized version of the past. Our habit memories, our bodies interact with both the long past and the imminent future, consisting of both perception as well as action. Part 3. The Persistence of the Disintegration of Memory Memory gives us a sense of the metaphysical dimension of what we are. Our memories are not of the now, yet the impact the now in an active way. We might think of examples of this where trauma victims perhaps relive past horrors, or even in a more benign way, where we think of being tickled as children and all of a sudden we experience a sensation in our feet. So the more we dwell on it, the more vivid the thought becomes, the more likely it is to present bodily. Our bodies are memories equipped with spontaneous action. While the body is made of matter and is a nervous system, a circulatory system, and so on, it is only 
a small part of how memory is produced. The body itself acts as a type of filter that distills memory as it impacts perception. Bergson is clear, though. He's not saying that we do not have organs, or nervous systems, or a brain. There is an obvious correlation, however. The point is that to say, as perhaps an eliminative materialist might, that the mind is only brain, is a bit silly, and oddly starts to look solipsistic. By now, you would probably have realised that when Bergson is talking about memory, he is talking in a much more metaphysical than, say, psychological register. The point is memory has a surplus that is not simply material. The images we put before our mind's eye and recollection or basic memory are just points external to each other. Bergson thinks, on the contrary, that memory is ontological. Every material point is already a version of a sedimentation of or the accumulation of all the points of the material universe. To say every material point even is somewhat illusory. And the point is, duration is an invisible contraction and tension of all parts of the cosmos, of all reality. In more local terms, though, this manifests in the idea that duration is a continuous form of memory, prolonging the past and the present. This is why memory is not technically stowed away or compartmentalised in the bodily organs of the brain. Our minds are not just like that. They are not things but activities. The metaphor of storing is probably not ideal either, to tell the truth, since we think of storing it is like thinking of, I don't know, say a barn filled up with individual things, like straw or fruit. The mind, thought itself, is not constituted as discrete, distinct entities. The things we think of are not really things at all, as they do not have definite limits. They are flow. These are, or to think of things as distinct entities, are abstractions, things we conjure up after the fact. Instead, our mind is movement itself. Memory has a spontaneous and autonomous capacity. Power has a tendency to continually act unconsciously within the world as it occurs. Thus, pure memory is also a form of virtual memory. Pure memory is virtual or potential, I suppose, because it is available to consciousness, even if not necessarily active. A habit is only called on when needed. As Bergson puts it, and I quote, We have supposed that our entire personality, with the totality of our recollections, is present, undivided within our actual perception. Then, if this perception evokes in turn different memories, it is not by a mechanical adjunction of more and more numerous elements, which, while remaining unmoved, it attracts around it, but rather by an expansion of the entire consciousness, which, spreading out over a large area, discover the fuller detail of its wealth. Bergson's accounting of duration and memory is extended to all reality. This is a key point to understand again. Matter and memory offers a metaphysical theory. It has ontological commitments that are primary to psychological concerns. In chapter 3 of Matter and Memory, Bergson begins to sound like an inverted German idealist. The way our minds are comported makes explicit how the world is and we deduce from the form of the structure of the world, which in turn enables us, the latter, to exist. To recall, what we think as impressions and perceptions are actually movement. 
While we think of our perceptions as abstract, discrete and static, they are in fact ever-changing and constitutive of my action. The present seems like a now, but is in fact in motion. The present is actually a state of becoming. If this were not the case, we could not connect a before and an after. That my experience is implicated in a before and after shows my experience actually is becoming itself, or duration. Also, my experience has a directionality, or even an irreversibility, as in it moves forward, not backwards. What our inner duration reveals is what we call bodies and minds as made possible inside the emotional flux of life itself. Our bodies and minds are continually acting and navigating that reality. The specific ways my particular mind and particular body negotiates any situation is determined by the ways my habit memories adapt to whatever context in duration they're given over to. Since duration is undivided and not reducible to discrete sensations, our memories are continuous with the broader action of reality itself. This is a type of, I guess, processual monism. Monism is one substance, which is duration. There is only one indivisible subject and it is the condition of all other forms of reality to exist. Our minds themselves in are a contraction and dilation of the broader stream of reality. Here Bergson appeals to the image of a cone on a flat plane to explain that idea. The cone demonstrates the duration of thought as an indivisible whole. The point the cone meets a flat plane, with the flat plane representing flux, demonstrates the duration of thought as an indivisible whole. The point the cone meets the flat plane shows the meeting of an immediate perception with flux in general. As we progress up the cone, we get to the horizon of our awareness. The moving plane is the flux of reality and the point it meets the base of the cone transmits becoming up and down from basic perception to our horizon of perception and awareness. Our cognition continually requires unconscious action to respond to the movement of reality itself. The important thing to grasp, or to try and grasp, is the movement of continuation or the persistence of change itself. What Bergson's cone shows is we ought to think of our perception not as an object or a content of experience which is past and subsequently recollected into the present. Instead, what is crucial to realise, to put it awkwardly, is the presenting of the past and the present, or the becoming present of the past, or of moments becoming present, becoming past, continuously. Once thought of in this light, we gain a sense of how our perceptual memory is implicated in wider environmental processes, and indeed, even deeper than that, in the cosmos itself. In summary, Bergson's matter and memory attempts to overcome empirical, or associationist as they are called, theories of memory. These forms of memory are discrete and atomized and only conceive of perception in a segmented way. Bergson repudiates prevailing theories of memory as they are overly premised on repetition and reproduction, where the past is merely copied or reproduced in the present. Instead, Bergson thinks memory is contiguous with creative duration. The distinction he draws between pure and perceptual memory, virtual and actual, is mediated by the form of habit memory. Habit memories are available forms of past life made present. Habits themselves function as a way to contract and dilate our experience where required in appropriate and relevant ways. The present then, which we take to be the most important thing of all, is secondary and derivative. The present is in fact a process whereby our recollected images realizes 
it is a byproduct of longer processes and habits. Now, we cannot draw a clear demarcation between instinct, impression and the long past is important for Bergson. It means that there is something immeasurable about the way the uncountable long past grows into an indeterminate open future. In the middle, of course, is the body obtaining valuable skills, habits and dispositions to negotiate the flux of experience. Our mind is not really at all located for Bergson. It is near the brain. It is not the body. It is implicated in the recent past. None of those quite capture what Bergson is getting at at all, because what Bergson is driving at is ultimately that the mind is of spirit. What matter and memory shows is the mind is a site of distillation. What does it distill? Well, while we ordinarily and sometimes cavalierly disown our past, Bergson thinks that we are always accompanied by the whole of the past. <laughs>